New details today in the grisly murders of a local family found earlier this week. Police have released this photo of Christopher Miller, the missing 13-year-old son of William and Penny Miller. The Millers, along with their younger son, were found stabbed inside their home, and police now are asking for any information that could lead to Christopher's return or the apprehension of any suspects involved in this vicious multiple murder and child abduction. Welcome to Now Playing's bonus retrospective series of Sinister. Don't worry, Daddy. I'll make you famous again. Hosted by Stuart. You look like a reasonable man. You do. Are you a reasonable man? Justin. You're a real man of the people. And Arnie. Yes. You have done some crazy shit in the past, but this definitely takes the cake. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. I find this to be an extremely bad taste. Listener discretion is advised. Have a nice morning with your murder victims. Today we're discussing Sinister 2, starring James Ransom, Shannon Sossaman, directed by Kieran Foy. This is the now playing co-host who's got the spirit of the boogie, Arnie. Stuart in LA. And this is Justin. To start again, we are back with another bonus show. That's three bonus shows total that we are doing here in short succession. Sinister, Sinister 2, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, all of which have Justin on them. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just the bonus guy right now. You're the pilgrim of now playing as we get into the season, you know. (laughs) It's an extra thank you to all of those that like what we do and want a little more horror in their life. But I want to put it out there, I seriously considered putting it on the calendar last year when Sinister 2 came out August 21st. I felt like we needed more horror in that lineup and said, let's do it. But we ended up having a conflict with Transporter of all things. So we didn't do it last year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we made the wrong choice. Well, we're making it right now because I guarantee you... This year, we wouldn't be doing the Transporter as bonus shows. <laughs> yeah, no chance of picking up that series, I don't think. Uh, you have to dust off a whole lot of dog poo off of it first. Hey, those first few movies got some recommends. But yes, Sinister 2, continuing our season of horror. We've got horror movies on the Donation series, horror movies on the main feed, all the Stephen King, Rob Zombie's 31. It's Halloween, and now playing started with a horror retrospective. We gotta keep it going. We love horror, and we hope you enjoy our show. And if you do, remember the donation series. Just head to our homepage, click the banner at the top, get reviews of The Hitcher, House, Chopping Mall. That was a good one. April Fool's Day, Vamp. Trick or Treat, not to be confused with Trick or Treat. Although we did that one too, it's in the archives. Deadly Friend, From Beyond, The Fly, so many. And coming up, the Reanimator Trilogy. Maybe there's a fourth one, we'll talk about it. There's a lot going on with that. But yes, 16 bonus movie reviews now, and a promise for a 17th later. Find all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. And of course, we're also warming up for Doctor Strange. And in doing so, part of the reason why we picked this horror series was that it's spearheaded by Scott Derrickson, who wrote and directed 
Sinister One, now has been reduced to a writing only. It wasn't the intent that Jason Blum says that the key to his success and why he does the sequels is he likes to keep the creators involved. It worked for Insidious, at least box office-wise. He got James Wan and the writer back to do Insidious 2. That's what he wanted to do with Sinister 2. But Derrickson told him he was not available to do the directing job. But he did write it. I think that's why they went forward with this sequel, is that it had the creator's blessing. And he approved this director. Kieran Foy had a little hit horror movie from Ireland called Citadel that came out around the same time as Sinister. And it shares a lot of similarities with the movie we're talking about today. I think it was tailor-made for him, honestly. Yeah, I loved watching the featurette here and finding out that Foy basically got this job through Twitter. <laughs> That he and Derrickson had tweeted back and forth after Derrickson said kind things about Foy's first film. Did you see Citadel, either one of you? I've never even heard of it till I was doing the bonus features for this. I was excited. It was one of those that had like a lot of critical hype to it. And I tried to get to the movie theater and I missed the showing. So I was, I went and I, you know, it was one of those that was streaming at the same time you could go to the theater. So I just ended up paying $12 to watch it and... Overhyped. I gotta say, I can see why they would hire him, though. It's about a group of little evil kids in hoodies that terrorize a man. They kill his pregnant wife, and they turn him into this claustrophobic person. And it's a whole sort of a psychological thriller about how he has to face down these hoodie bullies in order to regain his freedom and to leave his living establishment. It, it's kind of Roman Polanski, but it's also just kind of junky. And I can also see why... Derrickson didn't return for this, though. I mean, this came out in 15, and Blumhouse does fast turnarounds, and by this point, Derrickson was working on Marvel films, which are not fast turnarounds. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, obviously, you you take the, the big money and, and the big opportunity to go beyond the genre, and, you know, there's going to be more sinister sequels probably beyond this. Maybe. I guess we'll talk about it. So, you know, at some point, someone else is going to step into the director's chair. At least he gets his first pick for who's going to succeed him here, and that they're going to craft a story that is very much a continuation of the story last week with returning characters, although not Ethan Hawke. Yes. Thank God. Well, I don't know. Were we all jonesing for the return of Deputy So-and-so? <laughs> <laughs> I was jonesing for hearing what his real name was, but they still do not tell us what his proper name is in this film. Yeah, he's credited as ex-Deputy So-and-so now. <laughs> How can that be? You know, perhaps it's French. It's So-and-so. Yeah. No, I mean, he got that as a joke because he says that, you know, you always thank so-and-so in a book's acknowledgments page, and that's why he went to go work for Ethan Hawke last time. So-and-so was just, you know, how he identified as someone that was going to help him write a true crime book. He has a real name, and he's going to have a romantic relationship in this movie, and she's never going to learn it or say it. <laughs> He's even in the credits as ex-deputy so-and-so. It's unbelievable. I guess it's a game they're playing. It's like the Wilson of names, right? Like on Home Improvement? I guess. I, it's some kind of game. I, you know, It's certainly a comedic character, and I think that they're having some fun here with comedy, but I don't know. James Ransom is an actor I knew from The Wire. I don't know if he ever watched the HBO crime show, but he was a very memorable screw-up in season two, and he was a character I loved 
love to hate. And I, I do think he's capable of doing good stuff, but to see him lifted up to being the star of this movie is quite surprising. Yeah, I recognized his face and when i looked him up it turned out i'd seen him only once in the remake of prom night <laughs> i recognize his face too and i was surprised to find out it wasn't anthony weiner or luke wilson <laughs> he's got a little bit of luke wilson going on too yeah i i don't know that deputy so-and-so is ready to be our lead actor here but he's been thrust into it it's almost like they decided we're gonna make scream five Nev is busy, Courtney's busy. It's all about Dewey. Let's get our cat on the set. <laughs> well, let's not underplay Shannon Sozaman, who was sort of an it girl in the early 2000s. They, you know, they always give the new girl like three movies to prove herself. And she did Night's Tale, 40 Days and 40 Nights and Rules of Attraction. Uh, I don't really remember her, but she was a it girl. I think surprisingly so. My wife walked through the room as I was watching this and she's like, oh, Shannon Salsman. I'm like, who? How do you know that? <laughs> yeah. I looked her up and I've seen a couple things with her in it, 40 Days and 40 Nights and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And I think I at one point saw wrist cutters, but I do not know this actress. She looks a lot like Robin Wright. Yeah, oh, I can see that. Yeah. But no, I've seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang many times, and I probably couldn't pick her out of that movie. She's not the girl in it, though. She's not the main girl, but she's like the MacGuffin girl that they're all chasing. Uh-huh. She's the pink-haired girl in it, so... So what we're saying is that Blumhouse wasn't putting as much into this one as they had hoped the last time. I guess they were coasting on the good rep. And this movie did get a summer release. It did open pretty big, but did not perform as well. It will surprise no one to know that everyone was really going to see Straight Outta Compton last August, and this one only grossed about $20 million in theaters. Yeah, they put more money into this. The first one had a budget of $3 million. After it made a lot, Blumhouse pumped 10 into this one. Yep. And Blumhouse has had a lot of hits. It's worth pointing out that they don't need Sinister to work. They have Purge. They have Insidious. Paranormal Activities mostly done, but they've kicked off Ouija. They've had The Visit, The Gift, Oculus, Unfriended, even Whiplash, which was a Best Picture nomination. That's a Blumhouse? Yeah. Well, there's one that doesn't fit type. <laughs> Yeah. Every now and then they do something weird like Tooth Fairy, and you're just like, huh, I thought you killed people. I didn't know you did this. But Sinister 2, here we are. You say you knew nothing about it. I knew that I wanted to see it, and I, again, I considered programming it, but then I saw the trailer, and I was like, eh, not getting a good vibe off of this. Not having Ethan Hawke, well, I knew he couldn't come back, but not having someone of Ethan Hawke's stature kind of made this feel cheap. And then the reviews just were bad he could have shown up on super 8 videos right i mean yeah you could always find a way to bring back your actor i'm really looking forward to seeing how colin firth returns for kingsman 2 there's a way there's always a way sure <laughs> ethan hawks a twin brother decides to investigate his brother's disappearance this time he doesn't have a goatee so you know it's his brother <laughs> <laughs> yeah i just it felt like this one was done for the wrong reasons it surprised me if i had known that derrickson had written it i probably would have given it more of a shot but I just, to me, it looked like a quickie knockoff. And so I ignored it after the bad reviews and, and have only seen it just this once, just a couple days ago. I came in thinking that this had probably been received well. I didn't research it at all before I saw it. And so many great things had been said about Sinister. I just kind of figured, hey, it's got the same writer. I'm 
sure it got the same caliber of response. So I guess not. Not at all. Yeah, I think it's got a meta score of about like 15. Yikes. Yeah, I came in with very little knowledge of this. I don't remember hearing about it coming out. And after seeing the first one and enjoying it, I went into this with some positive vibes. Hoping that, you know, they could at least recreate what Sinister One delivered. I'll tell you what I had hoped for was a direct continuation. Okay, so we ended the last movie and Ethan Hawke and his family died. And there were the videotapes there. I thought, now that we know it moves house to house, that we could just pick it up and maybe find out even more about Bagul and how he worked. And really, we... saw the drawn picture of that family chopped all up but we never saw a body we never saw much of anything <laughs> arnie is not satisfied until he sees the viscera He's like he just needs the shrapnel absolutely not it's just movie rules they're not dead until you see a body it would make more sense for this movie to open up with a family moving into the mansion where Ethan Hawke and his family were killed. That was a cool mansion. What a fireplace. Yeah, maybe they couldn't afford it. I don't know. Instead, they decided to go to your neck of the woods, Arnie. This is central Illinois. This has got to be, like, down the street. Are you worried? I honestly had to pause this film and rewind because when we see Agent So-and-so putting a pin in a map and tracing Bagul's real estate business, mm-hmm. I'm like, did he just put a pin in Springfield, Illinois? And he did not. He put a pin in Litchfield, Illinois, which, Justin, you and I have talked a lot about because it has the Walmart that gets all the exclusives and no traffic. It's basically an oasis in the midst of a cornfield. I wonder if Bagul has something to do with that. He's scared all the children that would possibly buy the toys away. Well, I don't think it's that far away from Haddonfield either, which is where Michael Myers was stomping ground. You know, I we've survived serial killers in that part of the country before. I, I guess we can survive Bagul. I have no kids. I do live in a haunted house, but I have no kids, so I'm fine. Well, <laughs> in the first Sinister, we kind of admitted that there was a little bit of aping going on from The Shining. Not necessarily a direct ripoff, but, you know, a little homage there. Definitely. This one, it's obvious that they're going to pay some tribute to Children of the Corn. So they're going <laughs> to set us right in the middle of America in Arnie's backyard. Yeah, it's it was intentional. Like, they patterned characters after characters from that original, I believe, Children of the Corn film. They did not go back to King's prose. They went back to that original movie that I think I'm the only one who recommended. Yeah, you are. It's, uh, you know, I got a great opener. There's some creepy moments. I think it's one of those films that people always remember being scared by. And then when you sit through it for 90 minutes, you realize how incredibly boring it is. Malachi! <laughs> so that they want to remake that doesn't terrify me. Oh, okay, I can I can deal with corn. I'm, God knows. I've done nine movies of it. This is already the best Children of the Corn movie I've ever seen. <laughs> Certainly the best sequel. Yeah. But what is it going to be and what is it going to tell us about Bagul? I think that it begs a lot of questions and Arnie, let's give him the plot and we can see if we get answers. Well, it's been a few years since the Ellisons were killed at the end of the first film and the unnamed deputy has quit his job on the force and proceeded to go town to town to town in an attempt to stop Mr. Boogie. Knowing that the next haunting begins when someone moves into the house where a Bagul killing took place, the ex-deputy goes to burn down the houses so no one else can move in. 
So he heads to Litchfield, Illinois, to a home on the same premises of a church where a family was killed by being staked to the floor and eaten by rats. It's a complicated death. We'll talk about it. And the deputy hopes to burn down the house, but there's a family squatting there. Courtney Wheeler, played by Shannon Soseman, and her twin boys, Dylan and Zach. They're running from Courtney's abusive husband, Clint. The deputy knows if they move away, then Bagul will kill them, so he tries to convince them to stay and helps them to legally fend off Clint. But in the house, good boy Dylan has nightly visits by ghost children who show him 16mm films of their last living act, murdering their families. Dylan doesn't like watching the snuff films, but when he doesn't watch, he has bad nightmares. Meanwhile, bad kid Zack is jealous that the ghost picked Dylan and not him, so he beats up his weaker brother and does everything he can to become the chosen one. But eventually, Clint shows up with the town sheriff to take custody of the boys, and to not leave them alone, Catherine moves back with him. And that's when the ghost children strike. When Dylan refuses them, they choose Zack, giving him what he wants, and a camera to film the family. Then Zack drugs his family and puts them up on scarecrow poles covered in gasoline. He burns his father, Clint, and then goes to burn his mother when he's hit by the deputy's truck. When Dylan realized Zack was going to kill them all, he texted the former officer and he raced over. He cuts down Dylan and Catherine from the crosses, so Zack goes after them with a sickle and cuts off a couple of the deputy's fingers. Zack chases the three into the house, but the ex-deputy surprises Zack smashing his camera. And see, Bagul likes his murders to be recorded. Basically, it's a pics-or-it-didn't-happen kind of thing. <laughs> and so since Zack lost his camera, he failed Bagul. And so Bagul claims Zack to take him into the cinematic world, and Dylan and Catherine survive. And it seems the deputy did as well, but when he gets back to his hotel room, his laptop starts flashing symbols of Bagul, and the demon shows his masked face as we cut away and credits roll. You know, Bagul really ought to invest. There's some Apple product placement. I don't know why he's not on Periscope or something like that. The, the advancement is it was Super 8 film last week. This week it's 16 millimeter. Still a film format, but that's uh, what we're going to see at the opening of this movie. An unnamed three characters up on scarecrow poles. Yeah, bags over their heads. Very similar to the hanging imagery, only this time they're lit on fire. And all three are going to die. So we have a presumption that everyone in this scene is dead meat. However, they do a little trick. And I had to go back and watch this again. After I watched the movie a first time, I'm like, but how? This is a dream. This is what could be. This is a temptation. Bagul is wanting our main character, Dylan, to do this to his mother, his father, and his brother. And so it is just something that comes to him in his dream. And last time I asked about the Super 8 film and the little orange box, does 16mm have that same orange box to the side? We never see that on any of the other films either movie but here in the opening they have that flickering orange box to the left i mean it has sprockets it's film it's it's pulled through but it has it on both sides right yeah yeah definitely i feel like at this point they're just trying to 
harken back to the original movie and they feel like they have a signature here. You know, the opening scene is going to look and feel the same. Even though this is 16 millimeter, it's not capturing that same creepy feel that the Super 8 captures in the first time. This just feels almost like video with a filter put over it for the most part. Well, to be fair, the original movie was shot on video as well, but it was shot by a cinematographer who was instructed to make it look like films from the early 70s, which were really dark. You know, Gordon Willis, who shot The Godfather, was was cited as an example. They really had minimal exposures in that first movie. This is a brighter lit, we're going to get a lot of country sunlight in this movie, and I think it's a di different cinematographer with a different aesthetic. But Justin's talking about these murder films and the last one while the majority of the film was shot digitally or on video those super 8 films were shot on super 8 to give it that look yeah and here this doesn't have as sharp a look i believe they actually did film it in 16 millimeter but it's just not as creepy looking and it i mentioned the stuttery motion and how things didn't move quite smoothly in this eight millimeter video here I honestly could just be watching one of the Children of the Corn films from the 80s. Yeah, this just feels like old film stock rather than an old home movie, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. And again, it's, it doesn't even exist. It's a dream. We will find out that this character, while being tempted to make this movie, will actually never pick up the 16mm camera. It will go to his brother. And they have a clue about that here. He wakes up. He thinks he hears something in the closet. We have a pretty scary moment of Bagul kind of coming out of the dark through some of his hanging shirts and he hides under the blanket and then we see what we'll find out is actually his twin in ghoul makeup kind of jump out for what's a sort of inscrutable jump scare. Yeah, the stage is set here for a good horror feeling. I mean, you're on a an old farmstead and if that's not creepy enough, you're out in the middle of nowhere with cornfields. But this farmyard also has an old abandoned church on the property as well. So the things are in place for a good scare to come at you. So I'm, I'm getting excited at this point, you know. I mean, think about, you know, driving out. Arnie, you can go out back in your backyard and probably get the same feeling. Well, you see, this is actually... <laughs> can you imagine being in a place as terrifying as this? Well, this actually pissed me off. Well, you guys are like, this is a great horror setting. I'm like, oh, fuck. I do not live near cornfields. Not this close. I do not live... You used to. I used to, but I don't anymore. I do not live in a hick town. I live in a town with a very high per capita murder rate. Thank you. I live in a town with gangland shootings. And everybody thinks that this is where I live. <laughs> now that's frustrating. Hey, I live in Nebraska. I, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> but for, I mean, seriously, though, the setting of an old farmyard is a perfect setup for a horror movie. So let's see where they go with it here. Yeah, we've got a new family, of course, and they obviously we can't go back to what we did before. And we can't pretend that we don't know the modus operandi. We see here that this is Bagul, that he's going to be here on this farm. We know that he's going to bait this child into killing. So we know that this is a seduction story in which this child is going to be tempted to do violent things. That definitely changes the vibe of the movie. Just that it's not a murder mystery but uh, a fall from grace coming of age story makes it have a different edge and element. And it makes me feel like this is not going to just be a complete rehash of the movie last week. Here's what I like about this one is last time we saw the entire movie 
from the point of view of Ethan Hawke's father character, right? He's investigating Bagul, learning about Bagul, but we never really saw what was happening with his son and daughter. We did not know how Bagul works. I mean, we're told by Vincent D'Onofrio, hey, he's a pagan demon who's really into art and immortalizing himself <laughs> the same way as Ethan Hawke was and all of that. But I could tell really early on, okay, we're going to probably get about the same movie here. But now it's going to be told from the point of view of the corruptible children. And I like that idea. This time we're going to see behind the scenes. I get very frustrated with scary movies where you're just going to have sequel after sequel try to capture the exact same scares and not explore anything else. Here, if we're going to see how Bagul makes a child a killer... That's exciting to me. Yeah, and you know, it's pretty obvious if you didn't get it from this opener, we the next scene, there are two twins running around a supermarket shooting at each other. One is wearing a blue shirt. Guess what? He's the angelic one. One's wearing a red shirt. He's going to be the devilish one. It is a story about brothers turning on one another and a family in crisis because the mom is on the run from an abusive ex-husband. Did you guys have trouble telling these twins apart? I mean, I get it. They're twins, but I, I'm like having real hard time keeping up with who's the bad one, who's the good one, who's where at a given time. Color coordination. Bad wears red. Oh, that's funny. I didn't actually think they looked all that much alike. I was actually shocked to find out they're really brothers. Like, I thought it was almost bad casting. Like, oh, these guys aren't really brothers. But no, yep. They even considered using one child and, and doing the split screen thing, but they didn't have the time or budget. They just lucked into the best actors they could that were twins. But I agree. I didn't have trouble with that. I thought that the frailer one did look thinner. He did look, I don't know if it was performance or costuming, but he just didn't look as hardy. I mean, the other one is always so gleeful. He's just more alpha male. So I, f I think they should have done something more with the hair because I had trouble keeping track which one was Zach, which one was Dylan. It wasn't until like the end of the movie that I was really able to piece it all together. When they start beating each other up, it becomes clear. Right. And it is, as you say, a repeat of the last movie, but they brought in new tools. There are children that are going to come to him. It's not Bagul that's doing all of the courting and whining and dining, but there are kids that will lead Dylan down into the basement. Not only do they have the projector to play their horrible movies they've made in which these ghost children have killed their previous families, but they got a phonograph. We're going to find out that there's a ham radio and a whole music component this time. Bagul, he brings his own videography equipment. I like that. I asked where people were getting that Super 8 camera last time. It's a ghost camera. <laughs> Bagul's an ancient demon from before recorded history, but he's all of his tech is, you know, hipster type of tech. Yeah, early 20th century. <laughs> Mid-century modern kind of stuff. Yeah, he's got the, a hipster vibe to them. Again, you wonder why he doesn't upgrade and go VR or something like that. I think he's like Louis from Interview with a Vampire when he got to see a film. He's like all into that shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and well, he should be. But, uh, you know, I do like the idea that they kept the movies. I think we all agree that that was one of the highlights of Sinister One was to see the kill films. But boy, the problem is you got to escalate, right? You can't just do a, a family being killed. You got to make it more grandiose. And I think the films in this Sinister 2 don't work nearly as well because they're just so 
over the top. I mean, the things these kids have to do, uh, one of them is like from the bayou and he has to like string up his family above a swamp so an alligator can eat them. And another one has to turn on the kitchen sink and flood the kitchen they're remodeling so he can stand there in rubber boots and fry everyone with an electrical cord. It's it's really crazy. I mean, God knows Milo is going to have the worst one, but they're all, I think, unimpressive. I, I don't really like any of the kill films this time. I completely agree they were like you said over the top like they felt like they were trying to outdo themselves mm-hmm. and they just came off looking ridiculous for the most part the one that i did somewhat enjoy ended up being christmas morning yeah yeah it was the music more than anything right and i found out that one was a cut scene from the original movie that was supposed to be part of sinister one so that's why that one felt better than the rest of these ridiculous ones oh interesting i didn't know that but uh there's one that we barely even see it's something about at the dentist's office where i don't even know what's going they don't even care Uh, these kids aren't given the same level of interest and their movies aren't given the same level of interest i don't even know how bagul could have gotten to them there is a cut scene when you watch the dvd there's a scene that shows our main character the deputy finding a new link that there is a a new pattern that broke out from I think Mississippi and it went to Arkansas and Florida and Ohio and all of that. So somehow independent from the chain of house hopping that he was doing from California to St. Louis to Pennsylvania last movie, he also was working the American South. Well, let me just get in on these videos. I don't think the videos are that bad. I don't know that they have the same shock value as the first one. The only one that I would call bad is the alligator one, because that really threw me. I'm like, first of all, are we still in Illinois? Because we don't have gators up here. No, no, no. That The map in the cutscene shows... You no, know, no, I understand that. But I'm yeah. saying in, in the context of the movie, it was not clear where that was. Yeah. But the other ones of them... I didn't have too much of a problem with. I just enjoyed seeing more of that kind of kill film, again, from the child's point of view here. But yeah, I was wondering, it's been only a couple of years, the real estate market's been really bad during those years. You're not selling and flipping a whole lot of houses. So were these things that happened in between the other ones? Like we'd said that only happened like once a decade in the last film. Were there other Bagul killings that we don't know about? Bagul's got a lot of coals on the fire, apparently. Like to me, it would have been more satisfying to follow the string that we were originally following. But it's only been three years, and I think that it couldn't be much of a string. At best, it would have been house flipping three or times, right? You could only have three movies, and that's if you, I mean, that would be really crazy. Right, and we had already seen those snuff films, true. I was a little confused by, wasn't one of the little girls meant to be Stephanie from the original movie or just somebody who looked like her no none of them are connected to the families we saw before that was an entirely different string of of murders this is a different one that began at some point in the bayou okay so that girl just kind of looked yeah okay creepy girls you know grudge ring you know they're, they're the hallmark and they a dime a dozen in hollywood 
Yeah, you could go for some racial diversity, though. They're all, like, blonde girls. I mean, they, I don't know. They could have done something visually distinctive to these kids. But I guess they don't want to vary the formula that much. They don't want to go international. They don't want to change it too much. The point is, you get the movies, and they're a whole new string of movies because it would be redundant to replay the murders we saw last time and i do kind of like this family dynamic i am really intrigued during this grocery store scene i'm wondering what the fuck movie am i watching if i hadn't seen the deputy i would honestly think i'm watching the wrong movie because it turns like x files here there's like a creepy guy stalking the mother in the grocery store he's got this weird thin goatee and mustache and then like an old lady traps them in an aisle with her cart the mother yells rutabaga and they all run out knocking shit over i'm like wait a second what does this have to do with a murderous demon i was i was lost for quite some time on that yeah this is the touch that feels very much like Kieran's first film citadel and the idea that they're going to take a personal trauma from childhood and tie it to the supernatural. We're meant to be confused when we hear about he's coming to get these kids. Sometimes they're talking about Bagul, and sometimes they're talking about their mother's ex-husband, Clint. They're not even ex. I believe they're just estranged at this point. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She's run from him because he's beaten Dylan so bad she had to take him to the ER. She feels guilt about that. She's had a friend call in a favor, and the best they could get was to stay on, uh, yeah, essentially a haunted property in the middle of nowhere. And so that she's hiding out there, and the husband is trying to find her, and he's getting closer. These minions in the grocery store, store later we'll see some state troopers he knows enough people that he can pull strings and and try to get them back and i like the idea that it makes him as malevolent in a realistic way as bagul i love that he has so much pull and so much power that he can control people who work at a grocery store and old ladies who shop at grocery stores and cops. And yet when you see him, he just comes across like a drunkard at a football game. He does not seem like an <laughs> uber powerful businessman. <laughs> no, I mean, he seems like his entire motivation is to hit his wife and kids. <laughs> yeah. That is his entire motivation. It has nothing to do with he's overworked, he's stressed. There's nothing behind this character other than the fact that he's there to be abusive. Yeah, he's possessive. He wants them because he wants them. And I guess that's like Bagul. I don't know why Bagul's there either. I guess Bagul is there because they're on a haunted property where there was a church massacre. And that was the last time that he had some fun with some kids. And so he's taking the opportunity to latch on to poor little Dylan and and see if he can get him. But Bagul does not do a whole lot of talking. It's frustrating in this movie that all of it is deferred to the ghost children, who, if we weren't so crazy about them last week, I'm guessing that uh, it's even more of a problem for you this time. Oh, boy. Yes. Talk about overdoing it. Like, these kids aren't even ghosts anymore at this point. They're just characters in this movie. They're talking to people. They're talking to both kids. They're hanging out in the basement. I mean, they're not even haunting at this point. They're just, they're being passive aggressive, you know? <laughs> 
You know, I did not have the problem with the ghost children that you two seem to. I didn't necessarily like them the first movie, but here, I don't want a chatty Bagul, you know? I don't want a Bagul that ever speaks. I think he's better as a malevolent presence. Otherwise, you run the risk. What's he going to do? Tell a joke and turn into Freddy? And these kids, before I even knew they were going for Children of the Corn, I got that vibe. I like seeing the seduction of the youth by their peers. I like seeing them showing the tapes proud of their work like i made this come watch my tape is it scary no but i enjoyed watching the dynamic yeah my problem is strictly i think performance wise the director cited a film i really like as his visual reference he was trying to do the devil's backbone which is a guillermo del toro movie in which there is an orphanage where they find a little ghostly kid it's in our book Yes, it is. And Milo is very much a callback to the main character in that movie here. But all those kids, and trying to be scary, it's like watching Goosebumps or something like that. There's nothing frightening for adults to see children bullying other children. They're, these aren't scary kids to us. And so if the point is to create that ominous vibe that worked so well last week, I can believe that Dylan is terrified because he doesn't have an ally that he can talk to. But as an audience, I'm just not worried about these children of the corn. No, and it would have worked better if these brothers would have had some time to express a fear of this house or a fear of being out in the middle of nowhere. But they seem to be perfectly comfortable with the house and the creepy cellar. And, I mean, they give some weird looks over to the church. They're scared of the church. But they should be scared of the whole place. Instead, they're they're completely relaxed. They're hanging out with these ghost kids like it's nothing but a thing. <laughs> and I think those kids would have worked better, almost like Stuart said. Maybe if they weren't full-body apparitions. You know, maybe they came in and out of existence for these as these boys saw them and they only got bits and pieces of information from them rather than having full conversations. And maybe I'm wrong in this, Arnie. I, I can understand why you'd be fearful of them making the character look ridiculous, but I think it's Bagul's job to seduce the children. I think he should be like Pennywise. I think that he has to charm them like a clown and then pull them into his world. You have to see that seduction. He had to start somewhere. At, before, at the very first one back in 1966, or whenever it was, he had to do the work. Now he can outsource it to all the children he abducted, but... I do feel like at some point he had to turn a kid and I wanted to see how that was done. And I never thought the kids were necessarily seduced so much as possessed or entranced or something like that. I never imagined that they had to be convinced to kill their parents but i was okay with this as a new way of presenting the tapes and a new way of showing us the kill films can i ask one question and it's probably rhetorical about mr boogie's mo here because we have the deputy and in order to stop bagul he's trying to burn down the houses before anyone else can move in that's great. I think that's actually a really clever idea. We're never shown that it actually works, though. And my reason for this is because they're living in a house. No murder occurred in that house. It occurred in a church that's on the same property. So, I mean, is Bagul really interested in lot lines? <laughs> yeah, Bagul's down at the, the county offices. <laughs> mm. <laughs> 
Yeah. Going over blueprints and plots. <laughs> Only his realtor can know for sure. Like, no, Bagul, you can't go after them. I'm sorry. <laughs> they were just on the other side. No, the fence was put in the wrong place. <laughs> yeah, you know, you got to go with it. It's kind of absurd that, yeah, the, the church in the house is not, there's not a distinction between that. It's really absurd when we see what happened in that church. But, you know, we have to accept it to understand the dilemma here is that, yes, our character from the last movie is going to come there with a gasoline can to burn down the church. And then when he sees that people are already living there or right next to there, he realizes that's not enough. They are going to move if he burns it down. And when they move into a new house, they'll be dead meat. Their blood will be on his hands. I love that he shows up with like four giant tanks of gas. That never goes anywhere. Nobody ever questions. You know, he puts <laughs> up a story of he's a private investigator. She's more concerned that he's hired by her ex-husband than anything else. So she's not going to be too worried but she never ever really says so why did you come here in the first place or anything like that she's far more concerned with her own problems than a demon that might be living in her property she never asked his name well they didn't have a chance for any of that because she's endeared to deputy so-and-so the same way i think we are because at this point the ex-husband shows up with his cop buddies and deputy so-and-so gets the best of them by knowing the law about you know it has to be the sheriff to do it and blah 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 which I thought that was a that was a pretty good scene. He played it a little bit comedy-ish there at the end, but you know, I think it was a good character moment for the guy who's supposed to be our leading man here. Yeah, I think that they talked about how they didn't want him to be Dewey from Scream and that, you know, originally they considered having him get out of his car in his first shot and tripping over his shoelaces and realizing they didn't want to play him as goofy as he seemed last week. They have to make him a leading man if indeed he is going to save these kids. We can't mock him. He has moments, you know, he babbles to a priest and he has uh, moments where he seems absurd, but he also is smart enough to know how to go around the law and yeah protect this mother and children from being separated and that was enough for her to fall in love was it love was it <laughs> a drunken kiss i'm never quite sure if these two are like having a relationship or if they're just you know friends it clint at one point believes that like they're going to be getting together and that he's screwing his wife but this movie's very focused on the kids deputy so-and-so does not get enough screen time in my mind well okay let's think about this for a second i think the timeline of this entire movie takes place within three or four days tops mm -hmm. whereas in sinister i think that was a good month or so at least yeah it was a couple weeks i don't think it was too long but yeah it, it yes most of it happens within a 24-hour period that he comes to this farm and he says, I can't stay the night. We see that he still is very much like a child and they're going to try to have him be a lot like Dylan, that, you know, he is overwhelmed by his fears. He wants to hide under the covers. He's afraid of things that go bump in the night. I think he's got a good reason to. I mean, he is burning down the homes of a demon. I, <laughs> I, I, that can go wrong. I, I don't really hold it against him. But his personal growth in, throughout this movie is that he's going to learn to stay, stand by this family. Dylan will invite him to spend the night. And yes, 
they will see a lot of each other in themselves that I guess what we'll find out is that the deputy was an abused kid too. And that he, once he sees what happened to Dylan, he wants to make sure that they don't fall back into the possession of that husband. So they're only there for a day and you think they have time to learn each other's names. (laughs) (laughs) Right. The point being is this accelerated timeline, you know, we have people, Possibly starting a relationship without really knowing their names. Mm -hmm. I find it better that way. (laughs) Deputy so-and-so didn't even really ever sit her down and explain what he thinks is going on. Like, she she doesn't know that there's paranormal activities happening on this farm. Yeah, he thinks it's better. I mean, I guess much like Ethan Hawke's character, better to keep her in the dark, that she's better off not knowing how bad it was in the church. Because she's in there, like, romancing the fact that she's taking old furniture and fixing it up, and it's, like, healing. And he's like, yeah, yeah, well, this is a place where rats ate through people's stomachs because (laughs) they were covered in hot tin pots and there's a whole (laughs) lot of strange imagery connected with that like pots with rats in them and i don't know can i ask did the writer or director just see too fast too furious and think that gangster with the rat scene would be so much better if it actually ate through the guy yeah i feel like i've seen a few movies where this has been alluded to through dialogue the idea of forcing a rat to eat through a human that was a fast and furious movie wasn't it okay (laughs) yeah i couldn't help but think of that and like remember eva mendez being all fake horrified and that as like yes that's right okay (laughs) i've repressed that one that is the worst of the bunch probably so not one i would think about much this was far better than that the way it they made it seem like a pagan ritual because even though it does look like there's like colanders tied to everyone's stomach they're using hot coals it's too hard like that he's got to like clean out the pew like first he's got to drug the sacrament everyone's got to take communion fall over a drug they can't tell that there's like glow-in-the-dark green fluorescent shit in their wine and then he's got to like pull the pews away nail them to the ground they wake up they get rats brought in the rats are put underneath the tin pots and then you got to heat the tin pots to force the rat to eat through their stuff come on man that is like five steps too many it's like playing a gamma mouse trap exactly yeah or he could just shoot them i mean my god (laughs) (laughs) where did everybody else go to like the previous scenes of the church it was a full church and then like he only has like six victims yeah there was only like five or six i yeah you know whatever (sighs) that church i'm not impressed with these ghost kids and and the kills themselves again the best part of the movie last week is really the worst stuff in this one i'm more curious to know what this cain and abel storyline is going to be that we have these two brothers and that one of them you know there was a cut scene i don't know if you watched the cut scenes on the dvd but one they should have probably included if it weren't so laughable is the idea that the ghost kids are goading Dylan to use his slingshot to kill things. And I think kept in this movie is a a scene where he couldn't bring himself to kill a spider, but more dramatically, he was also goaded to try and kill a bird and Zach takes it away from Dylan, shoots the bird and then like jumps up and down on it. It ends up looking very goofy, but at least tells you that Zach is competing for the role of being the child killer. I agree. They should have kept that scene in because with that scene, I would have gotten this Cain and Abel kind of relationship so much better. At first, I'm confused that they can both even see the 
the ghost children, you know? And then when I figure out, okay, children can see the ghosts, but adults can't, I go with that conceit. I mean, how often have we seen that in movies? And then one wants the job and isn't getting it, and the jealousy there. And the ghost obviously did pick the wrong one, because there's a mean-ass brother there. Well, that's maybe what they always wanted. They were just trying to make him resentful enough that he could snap. Yeah. They were goading him into it. Yeah, exactly. And to me, the twist would have paid off better if it ended up being the good kid who ended up doing the deeds. Yes, me too. Because I find it hard to believe that these personalities in this family are so split. Just as we mentioned, Clint is such a ruthless nothing that his son is just like him and that, that the mother is so sensitive and furniture rebuilding and that her, the other son is just like her. I would have liked to have seen something where we didn't just have a 12-year-old who was evil from the start and was like, yeah, kid, I'll let me kill my family. I mean, let's have a little seduction there. <laughs> yeah, the idea of being born bad is a difficult one if you've had any level of child psychology class or anything. I mean, you just, that's an old world thinking that like, oh, he just has his father's blood in him. And so he's just evil, evil, evil. I mean, no, I mean, he might've taken after his father because he wasn't the one that was beaten. I mean, what it sounds like is that only Dylan got beat. But these dynamics are all left to inference. And it's just, it's the heart of the movie, but it's not really well articulated because the star of the movie is the deputy. And he has a really bad subplot in which he has to step away for reasons I still don't understand and learn about some Norwegian ham radio murder. Okay, I thought somebody <laughs> here could explain it to me. I do like, they obviously, they don't have Ethan Hawke, so they can't get his friend Vincent D'Onofrio back no. on the line. So he literally says, are you new? the new professor jonas <laughs> they're like no he was trying to write a book and disappeared i'm like no he found out that his friend wasn't doing it and he said fuck that and then he said well why can't you just tell me over the phone he's like no you have to see this in person what does he have to see in person <laughs> there is something said about not only is there a film projector that has power that bagul can use really all forms of art i imagine he could do i don't know uh, interpretive dance or, or you know ballet <laughs> shoes who knows podcasting yeah meh well maybe the next time but for this <laughs> one he they want to break out the audio and so there is this phonograph and he plays records of tinkling child pianos and as far as i can tell he Maybe that's how a different chain was created. Maybe this girl in Norway that killed her family and then broadcast the coordinates about it is the one that can be linked back to the alligator murders and all of these other murders. That there's a Super 8 Bagul and then there's a phonograph Bagul. I, I don't know. Well, it felt like they were trying to say that the Norwegian story was as far back as they could trace it at this point. Mm, the origin itself. Maybe the very first time. I don't know. Maybe. It was the early 1970s, so it was even later than the pool party. So, I don't think so. It's indecipherable what they were intending. But more importantly, it's just not scary to have this ham radio be like, it's the kids, it's the kids. There was a cut scene there where we actually get to see the Norwegian ghost come and kill Stromberg, this, this new professor. Even more indecipherable than even having the ham radio there to begin with. 
Yeah, I think that might have been the original ending was that we would cut back to him destroying the ham radio only to find her waiting for him back in the lab with an axe. Well, the whole scene is just there to get Deputy So-and-so away from the farm for enough time. Right. So they can be grabbed by the husband, yes. Yes, and yes, that whole scene should have been and could have been cut. The actor playing the professor was just, man, if some of these snuff films are over the top this guy's caffeine consumption was over the top (laughs) that guy is terrible just terrible i don't know what was happening you complained about the kids the kids are fine this guy this must have been blum's nephew who the requirement of making this film is you hire him or something he's not he's just just a working actor what they said was they wanted someone that's the same age as the deputy that could play off of it in the same way that the deputy played off of ethan hawk last time that didn't work We can all agree that this whole thing, the whole bit of it, is inscrutable and and is not scary or add to the Bagul mystique. Agreed. And then the movie really, I think, loses focus. Once we finally understand, they show the last movies and we realize that it's Zack who is going to be the apprentice, that Dad is going to take them away, and so by moving to a new home, he will have the freedom to make his 16mm kill film. But we have a whole lot of stop and start. I think there's like three days that happen before he finally makes his move, because we have scenes where like they're at the dinner table, and they're eating, and I'm thinking, oh, they're going to be drugged, they're going to wind up on the scarecrow pole, but they don't, and we have the deputy come to rescue, them and then gets his ass kicked and he just leaves it's it's really a highly spastic climax in which you just want it more clean and more simple let's get to it let's get to you know the showdown but it just it takes about six scenes to do what should have been two well then they they have to like wedge in this happy looking family scene for the movie thing to work out so you got dad helping the kid learn how to swing a golf club a mom reading a book on a blanket i mean it seems so staged and fake i'm really confused because the dad's helping the kid he beat learn how to use a golf club i thought they really were doing the switcheroo and the kid he beat was the one going to be in the field there and the one he liked was learning golf. It's, it was confusing. I can't say I'm having as bad of a time with this as you guys are, though, because I was still enjoying the corruption. And I was enjoying, last time I wondered which of the two of Ethan Hawke's kids was going to go bad. Here, I really thought they'd go Dylan, but they go the other way with it. And that is surprising to me. And I'm excited to see the kills. I'm excited to see the staking up and the filming all of it i mentioned last time the director said that the filming got more steady when the kid put a camera on a tripod here we see him actually put it on the tripod yeah he's driving a truck so that he can we were wondering how he got them up on scarecrow poles he actually had to erect them with a pickup truck and ropes and all of again it's so elaborate it's so i guess the point is you have a better film the more you go over the top that milo is so far winning the film festival because he had to get tin pots and rats and churches and drugged wine and all of that and so scarecrows are even more awesome apparently yeah and who and when did they have time to clear out that circle in the corn yeah you have an army of ghost children i think they're helping 
Sure. Okay. Why not? Yeah, you know, get the <laughs> combine, whatever it is. But yeah, all right. So they're making this film here. This is really where you know it's not scary. A 10-year-old child chasing grown adults with a sickle. Can't you spank him? I mean, is that intimidating to see a small... He runs him over with his truck. I mean, I really don't think that this is a fair fight once the deputy comes riding in to save wife and kid. Of course, the father is already burnt up conveniently. We don't have to have any moral quandary of, do we save the bad guy? Nope, he went first. But I just can't believe that they're going to try to make a chase scene out of this small child trying to harass grown adults that can easily overpower him. I thought for sure he was killed with the way that truck hits him and he flies like a rag doll. Yeah, why isn't he? But as far as trying to spank him, didn't you see the deputy tried to stop him and lost a few fingers for his effort? No, they ran away and then they ran into him while they were going through the corn. Duh, you keep a clean line of sight. You don't like go running into the blind thicket. You like stay in the truck. I mean, this is not a hard fight. I don't feel good about kicking the ass of a 10-year-old. I mean, this should not be the triumphant moment here, but it all, yeah, winds up being that he loses some fingers ends up in the house. They try to do some ghostly stuff with the kids ransacking the place, looking for them. Yeah, apparently once a door shuts, that's it. Run someplace else. Just, no, open that door. I mean, how many different doors do they run to? And like, ah, it closed. <laughs> Again, it's kind of embarrassing that she can't get her own child under control. Yeah, once you disarm him, you're a grown man. Bear hug him until he calms down, right? Go to your room. Yes, yes. And also, the whole conceit of this thing that makes it somewhat believable is that these children were able to pull off these deeds because they drugged the people. Right. And so they were out of it. That was it. That was the only way. And the mom and the son are all of a sudden right back at it. They're fine. The drug wore off. Well, they woke up. Yeah, they woke up. I mean, they were drugged. I mean, that kind of irritated me. The kid knew the lemonade was drugged and took a swig anyway. Okay, well, dumb. But yeah, they recovered from that. The deputy never drank any of that. And yet they're all not drugged at this point of this climactic chase, it really shouldn't be a difficult thing to defend themselves from a, one child in a, a, a sickle. My problem is more technical. We start seeing this whole thing from the point of view of that 16 millimeter or Super 8 camera or whatever it was, and we get no audio. And it's all shaky and jerky. When the deputy lost his fingers, I was like, did that really happen? I had to kind of go back and take a look and rewatch it because we see his hands bleeding. But I'm like, a sickle's going to take some fingers. Okay, it did, but we barely were able to absorb that because of the way it was filmed. And because there's no sound, I think they were trying to say... You were scared of all those kill videos. Here's another one. But all those other kill videos were better made because they weren't chases. Yeah, I don't feel like even if he was successful that he would win the prize in upstage Milo. Milo in his church is going to remain the... Or who knows, maybe that dentist one. We never really even saw what was going on there. But there, it was a bonus feature. All of these kill videos are bonus features at the end, including this final fight, which I rewatched as the bonus feature with no 
show outside of that format footage and it played a little better i mean by this time i'm so checked out of the story that my biggest concern is is that deputy so-and-so is running around after losing two fingers and wrapping it up quickly with a, a tissue or something you know what if i get a hangnail i'm careful about putting my hand in my pocket for a week <laughs> this guy's like lifting things up and running around like even after they escape he goes and you know, he's packing with that hand. I'm like, go to the hospital. Go get that thing taken care of. <laughs> I, I actually have had that thought with several movies is if I stub my toe, I'm out. And, you know, these people get stabbed and keep fighting. But I have to think the adrenaline and fighting for your life makes you work through some of that pain. Sure. And as long as it's exciting, I'm not, I don't nitpick things when I'm engaged with the fight. That we're looking at this kind of thing shows how unscared we are by it. The only thing that working is they brought the boards of canada song back and i like that that has a consistent feel to the climax even though this climax is not consistently scary like the last movie yeah so we end up in the attic of their father's house and what's going on here the the kids show up well that basically because the deputy destroys the camera and the kid is hoping that it will magically reappear in the box and it doesn't Bagul just kind of decides that, all right, I don't know, it's weird. The kids are like, you can't be one of us, you didn't make a film, and then Bagul turns them into one of them anyway, so I don't know. I, I think it's different. It's, you can't hang out with the kids. You can't be one of the cool kids who lives in the afterlife. Bagul ate his soul. Oh, oh, he got eaten? Yeah. Yeah, I think he was destroyed. Like, the last we saw of him, his face was turning into a skeleton. Yeah, there was this melty thing going on. Okay, all right. Well, I would rather be eaten than have to live on with those that Milo. Eesh. Not that I believe any <laughs> of those kids actually lived. You know, I think they're manifestations of Bagul's will or something. Well, maybe. I thought they were corrupted. I thought this movie is telling us that children can do terrible things if they're exposed to enough bad art. <laughs> I know I'm capable of it. Yet, yet, I don't ever believe Ethan Hawke's daughter could have been convinced to murder her whole family like that. I think there had to be something supernatural. Arnie, that's where I have a big problem between these two movies. In the first one, I don't feel like Stephanie was seduced or convinced to do this. I feel like she was possessed to do what she did. Mm-hmm. If she would have woken up the next morning and, you know, not been taken by Bagul, she would have had no memory of what happened. Yeah. In this movie, it's all about a kid, like, trying out and applying for this position, which seems like a weird jump in logic from what we know of Bagul up to this point. Yeah, and while I don't think the twins are bad, I do think the ghoul kids, they don't look scary and they don't look like friends. I mean, I think in order to join a bad club, you got to see something cool about them. And I just can't imagine why anyone would want to hang out with this clan. They're just not cool. And I would like to see a reason why he wants to do it. You know, even if all of those other kids were possessed the way I feel like the girl was last movie. I'd like to see why this one kid is such a bad seed. What is it with him? He has an abusive father, but the father doesn't abuse him. 
why him? It's, it's kind of bad character design. Yeah, I, I get what they were trying to go for. They were looking at cycles of violence and the family unit, the kinds of things that were done in Citadel, the director's first film. And I think Derrickson was hoping that he could sell that, but what they are striving to do, they're not hitting. And I feel like they don't have an ending either. That they're giving a happy ending means that, well, we've got to end on something. So they have this useless scene of the deputy going back to the motel. He has a laptop that kind of malfunctioned earlier. I guess Bagul was killing him? I don't know. He turns on the ham radio at the very least. I'm not sure what happens. I mean, I took it that they all got away and it's just, you know, an open thread if they decide to do a three. Yeah, I figured it was going to, it was telling us Bagul's still around in case you didn't figure it out. That was never in doubt. Bagul's pissed at the deputy for screwing up his plans here. The house is burned down, so he can't move on from this thread. He'll have to, I don't know, maybe he should like get into musicians or something, like attack a high school band or something like that. And, you know, (laughs) something wider range. Like, I don't know how many people are going to watch 16 millimeter and 8 millimeter films. He's got to get something that can go viral. God, I think they made that movie of the evil YouTube video like The Ring, but for another time. But for now, Justin Stewart, do you recommend Sinister to Justin? I think it's been pretty obvious throughout our talk here that I wasn't going with a lot of the things that this movie wanted me to go with. And, you know, in the first movie, it almost lost me with all the children ghost stuff. And this movie did lose me there. Once we started hanging out with those kids and they were having conversations and all that stuff, I was checked out. I was still watching, but nothing was scaring me. Nothing was getting me creeped out. It just was not working. And the other thing that did not work is the two main kids that we're supposed to be following, just that did not do anything for me at all. Like I said earlier, it would have been a nice twist to have the nice kid end up being the killer and actually going through with it and killing people. The first time around, it ends on a very dark note. Nobody lives. Here, for whatever reason, these people that we don't care as much for as we might have in the first movie, they get away. But only the good ones. The mean father, the mean son die. Yeah, but I almost feel like those two were there just to be killed. Yeah, I agree, yeah. Yeah, that might be a happy ending. That I mean, it's a little cruel to say, oh, you can't be fixed at 10 years old, 12 years old, whatever he was. But if, if one had to go, we're glad it's Zach. Yeah, so I guess it's really no... No big shock that I'm I'm not going to recommend this movie. I could not sit through it again if I had to, and I wouldn't suggest anybody who enjoyed the first one feeling like this one's going to provide more answers to the first movie. They're just not there. Stuart. Yeah, it's a bad movie, but you know what? I tried to keep perspective about it. It always happens. Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Poltergeist. There's always that sequel that just, they don't know what to do yet. They knew how to tell that first movie and they couldn't figure out how to make it a franchise. I don't think it dooms the idea of a Sinister 3 They could pick up and have another good one. I think the problem is that they got really child-focused on this. This is not a kid movie. It's an R-rated movie. But by putting so much of the film into the hands of 10-year-olds that are supposed to be scary and traumatized and giving dramatic line readings... I just feel like that ultimately made this movie feel phony and just not scary for adults, particularly an adult like myself that doesn't have kids. It was much more sinister when it was Ethan Hawke as a writer not knowing what to trust in his own home. Here, uh, 
Kids on a Cornfield. I'll give them that. It's the best children of the corn film I've ever seen. I'll stand by that as my endorsement, but that's still a not recommend. I'd call it the best children of the corn sequel. I don't think it lives up to the Linda Hamilton original, but... Instead of giving a recommend up top, I'll let you guys just into my mindset. I watched this movie, and I walked away, and I thought, well, you know, not as good as the first by any stretch of the imagination, but I liked that they turned it on its ear, and they showed us the kids' point of view. We got to see what the kids see, because last time we only saw the little girl kind of tormented by another girl going, shh, while she was painting pictures. So I kind of liked that concept. I liked that we were trying to deal with a couple more real-world issues, you know, abusive father. I liked that he, the abusive father got a little creepy, like, I'm going to go upstairs and fuck my wife, you know, when he's talking to the deputy. And I thought the kill videos were pretty good. And so I walked out of there, and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to give this a recommend. And then I come to this podcast, and you two are railing on this film. And I'm sitting there like... Well, no, guys, it's not quite. But then I kept thinking to myself, okay, well, interject into the show and say something good. Come on, come up with something good to say. <laughs> uh, you like the videos. Okay, next, come on, come up with more good to say. And I realized I really don't have a lot of good to say about it. I couldn't defend <laughs> it against the onslaught of hate. So I'm going to give it a weak not recommend because I don't have a lot positive to say. But it was fine it was always on the border but i'll give it a week not recommend because i couldn't find it in myself to defend it yeah and i don't think that i'm railing against it as being a horrible movie as many bad horror movies as i've seen this wouldn't begin to scratch the surface of the terrible i've lived through what i'm saying is after a really genuinely scary movie last week how disappointing to see this movie not scary at all and that is my frustration in both cases i was hooked by the who done it i was hooked by who really a who's gonna do it that mystery worked for me in both movies. So is this a letdown after last week? Sure. Do I think that you should only judge a sequel by the original? No, but I still couldn't find enough in here to go against all the things you guys were saying. So yeah, I'll give it a red arrow, not out of peer pressure, but because upon this conversation, I'm like, okay, I like the kill films, but they're not as good as the first. And the acting in here is pretty abysmal. And it's really just freaking stupid. They didn't name the deputy. They thought they were cuter than they ended up being. So it's a week not recommend. That said, I kind of hope for a third. I went out and researched because I'm like, this made five times its budget. It made over $50 million on a $10 million budget. That's all it takes for Blumhouse to pump another one out. But I don't see anything on the schedule. It, because it's not popular, there's not a lot of requests. But more to the point, it's not really obvious where you pick up and go. I think a big mistake was making the deputy so central. I think he was a goofy character and it damned this movie to feel goofier than it should. We should feel really scared or if not scared, at least chilled unnerved and if with this one with so many cute kids and goofy heroes you need to just start over i'd say find a new family dynamic and make bagul the center of it again i really want to know a whole lot more about bagul and i still feel like they haven't told us much having deputy so-and-so come back and be such a major part of this movie is probably my biggest problem it feels like we went back to short circuit 2 where they couldn't get <laughs> you know ali sheedy 
and Gutenberg back, but who could they get? Fisher Stevens. All right, you're the main guy this time. <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of my problem with this. And when it wasn't even needed, you're right. They should have done a clean swipe with this and started a new string somewhere else happening to some other family. Yeah, I, I think that's probably what they will do. My guess is if they make it, it will be like direct uh, video on demand. Direct to Super 8. I don't know that Blumhouse does direct-to-video sequels, do they? Uh, they've had one or two that they just didn't have a lot of faith in. That just sort of like the town that dreaded sundown had a remake that it just appeared one day. I don't think it ever was in a theater. So that's not the plan. You're right. They don't calculate like we'll make one of those. But I just don't know that after Sinister kind of hurt its reputation and. Yeah, time is passing. They need to get a star to sign on. That's what I would say. If they can convince an Ethan Hawke level actor to come aboard, then it's theatrical. If all they're going to do is, you know, no name characters, then yeah, it'll probably just exist in digital format. And all I ask is that just be scary again. Don't try to be cute. I don't want more of the funny character. My thought would be kind of go the insidious route with a Lynn Shea ghost hunter type thing. They had a good idea, I think, with this deputy going house to house trying to stop Bagul. He's somebody who's in on the methodology, who can try to be proactive to stop the demon. I just don't think the deputy's the right person. I think if, God forbid, you'd opened up that checkbook wide enough and gotten Vincent D'Onofrio when he was, you know, in between Jurassic World and Daredevil to come on and be the character there, it might have worked a lot better. Because, yeah, the deputy is a goofy character, but I think the only way you're going to have a franchise is if you have a nemesis for Bagul, because I don't want an anthology series of family after family ending up hacked up either. No, of course not. And yeah, I mean, it's not obvious how they should go. I'm guessing that when and if it does get written, it won't be involving Derrickson and his co-writer, that they will be new people coming into this, that Blumhouse will have to get in new blood and it will live or die by their ideas. But he's got his own ideas. He's going to be making Doctor Strange. And I'm curious to know how much of his horror background is going to make an appearance. I'm hoping more than the trailer shows. Well, I'm just hoping that he doesn't do any inserted jump scares to right before the credits like both of these movies ended with. <laughs> we didn't mention that on either of these shows, but that's, that's one thing that does kind of bother me. That pandering, Bagul's face jumps out of the side frame to end the movie and then we're rolling credits oh they're absolutely going to but it's going to be thanos <laughs> yeah when is that getting started how many movies has it been since they used that jewelry <laughs> <laughs> he's still getting his glove together it'll happen well you can hear our thoughts about dr strange here at now playing and justin you'll give your thoughts over at our sister podcast marvelicious toys at marveliciousToys.com. and again if you enjoy hearing this show Don't forget all of our bonus shows coming out on Fridays. Just head to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. You can see all the movies we're covering and all the details, how to support our show. We are a show with no sponsors, no ads. Every penny donated goes to making this show the best it can be and keep it going. We rely 100% on your support to do it, and we would appreciate any support you're able to offer. So, Justin Stewart, thank you for joining me. You bet. And until next time, Rutabaga! Whatever happened in the Oswalds is only going to happen again. It's a question.
question of when and where. Thank you for listening to this bonus now playing Sinister Movie Review. It's aesthetic observance of violence. We hope you've enjoyed the show. I just want to see you enjoying your work again. When you're happy, we're all happy. Now Playing is a podcast with no sponsors or ads. We rely on listener support to keep reviewing movies week after week. I promise it's worth it. And right now, through December 31st, 2016, if you donate to Now Playing, you can get over 15 bonus horror movie reviews. The movies make the dreams go away. Once you watch them all, you never have a bad dream again. For real? Swear. Hear reviews of all films in the Fly and Reanimator series, plus reviews of eight horror classics from 1986. The Hitcher, House, Chopping Mall, April Fool's Day, Vamp, Deadly Friend, Trick or Treat, and From Beyond. What is he paying you? I don't have a lot, but I, I will pay you what I have. Find details on how to donate by clicking the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. Every minute that we're here, we're a minute closer to that happy ending that we always dreamed of. We're almost there. Now Playing's Sinister Retrospective Series is edited by Heath and Arnie. Dude, headphones. You're gonna go deaf! Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Speak only when spoken to and tell you what he asks us. Now Playing is not affiliated with Blumhouse Productions, Summit Entertainment, or any of the makers or copyright holders of the Sinister films. These movies are the intellectual property of those companies, and no infringement is intended. We don't have any legal authority to be here. We called our bluff. The opinions expressed in Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Do I believe things that you're talking about exist? Yes. And I believe they exist to lure men like you into them. Stay out of it. Whatever it is. Now playing as a Vinganza Media Production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. Am I making myself perfectly fucking clear? We're watching more movies. I don't want to be like you. That's fine. You did what we needed you to do. What? They weren't really meant for you anyway. We needed more horror in that lineup and said, let's do it. But we ended up having a conflict with Transporter, of all things. So we didn't do it last year. <laughs> well, that's a Sophie's choice, isn't it? Which series do you save? <laughs> well, I made the wrong choice in so many ways on that. I was recording fucking Transporter from New York City for that weekend of release, paying like $22. You didn't know it didn't have Statham in it. That was like a funny thing to hear you realize that you're like, oh, it's got Statham, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, the new one doesn't. Like, we were already committed. And you're like, the new one doesn't have him. You're like, wait, what? What? What do you mean? <laughs> yeah, some nameless guy. Hey, that nameless guy was Ajax in Deadpool. Thank you. Yeah, and he sucked, Matt. <laughs>
Every now and then they do something weird like Tooth Fairy, and you're just like, huh, I, I thought you killed people. I didn't know you did this. So I take it you're not referring to the Tooth Fairy about the demon that killed people. No, that was Darkness Falls. This was the one with the rock. Oh. <laughs> Where he is actually the Tooth Fairy. That only yeah. killed careers. That didn't yes. kill people. <laughs> Somehow not the rocks, though. I feel it, it could be lethal if I actually sat in front of it. And there is a sequel, and we'll never be covering it. Does it have Hulk Hogan? It has Larry the Cable Guy in it. Yeah. I thought that was Jingle All the Way, too. But that as well. Oh, yes. my God. Will somebody just kill... Can we put Larry the Cable Guy in a Blumhouse film so we can kill him? <laughs> yes. Maybe Sinister 3. I don't know what they're doing with that. <laughs> 